Thank you so much, Dr. Lau. I've really already enjoyed my visit a great deal. We had a wonderful dinner last night. I saw Jackson Laboratories, which is just an amazing facility. Um, it's a really wonderful resource for all of you, especially uh, those interested in becoming physician scientists. So I'll be talking about new therapies for sickle cell disease and kind of interspersing the research that I'm doing when it relates to um, the therapy or the aspect of sickle cell pathology that I'll be talking about. So it won't be a case-based talk. Um, you could certainly picture a sickle cell patient, one who you know is on hydroxyurea at maximum tolerated dose and still having significant complications as one that would need added on one of these new therapies. So we'll talk about the pathophysiology of sickle cell disease, the clinical manifestations, uh, some potential therapeutic interventions, two of which are FDA approved and others that are in the pipeline. Talk about standard of care um, as it relates to these novel therapies, how they might be used in combination. And again, I'll talk about some aspects of my research, um, which has uh, started to become somewhat numerous, perhaps too numerous. <laughs> but um, I, I can't help it. I love sickle cell disease. I love research um, from all parts of the spectrum, from basic science to clinical trials. And as a physician scientist, you get to do that. You get to do the lab and the clinical trial. Uh, because you're, you're qualified to. So we all um, probably have a picture in our heads of sickle cell, um, the deformed red cell, which is elongated due to the hemoglobin polymerizing. Because of this uh, amino acid change from glutamic acid to valine in the beta globin gene, there's now a hydrophobic residue where there was a hydrophilic one. And we all want to be in our lowest energy state, so the um, hemoglobin polymerizes or stacks to bury that hydrophobic residue creating that elongated chain rather than having the hemoglobin loose in this red cell bag. And that's certainly part of sickle cell pathophysiology, but we perhaps overemphasize it because it's not all this, let's see, you see my arrow there, this um, microvasculature getting blocked by the rigid elongated red cell. There's other important parts too, which I'll describe and, and uh, how we might attack it from a, a pharmacologic standpoint. Just wanted to briefly mention the complications of sickle cell disease. Stroke is a major concern. If we did nothing for our patients, no interventions, 10% would have a stroke before the age of 11. And this is an overt clinical stroke that doesn't even discuss the silent infarcts, which are far more common. We don't even know how common because it would typically require an MRI to definitively diagnose. They're at risk for blindness from retinopathy, uh, which again is something preventable if you screen um, yearly, avascular necrosis of the shoulder and hip, which can be a source of chronic pain and disability. Gallstones are common from the lysing of that red cell. A sickle red cell lives 20 days instead of 120 days, so they're chronically hemolyzing, releasing bilirubin, which results in, in bilirubin gallstones. One of the earliest manifestations is splenomegaly in Africa, particularly. In the US, they tend to, rather than get a large spleen, get a very small atrophied spleen, which is non-functional. And that's really what kills young sickle cell patients, the functional asplenia leading to sepsis. So once we figured that out and started putting our patients on penicillin, life expectancy went from under the age of five to 18. So just that simple uh, measure. Of course, our patients can experience splenic sequestration before the spleen um, autosplenectomizes and that is a potential source of, of mortality as well, the trapping of large amounts of blood in the spleen. 
Um, there's urinary side effects, the hematuria, uh, difficulty diluting the urine, which is, uh, can lead to chronic renal insufficiency. Um, dactylitis is another early manifestation. Their fingers look like little sausages with a taper to them. And some feel like that's a sign of future severity to come. One of the most interesting things to me about sickle cell disease and what drew me to it as a third year medical student is the same genetic mutation has such different manifestations. Some patients are very mildly affected, others have a stroke before the age of two. What makes them different? And so something that me and many others are trying to find are what are those other mutations, those other variants that are predictive of disease course. And I would like us not to think about it as a global severity, but what causes someone to be at risk for one of these individual complications. I don't think there is a gene that makes sickle cell more severe. There is no global severity. There are just individual complications that our patients are at risk for. Uh, priapism, of course, is another complication. 30% of teenage males experience it. Osteomyelitis, chronic ulcers, rare in children, rare in the US in general, more common in tropical areas. And of course, what most people think of when they hear sickle cell, pain. Acute pain events leading to chronic pain. It may not be what kills our patients, but it definitely is the major decrease in their quality of life. So for preventative care, um, you might even start with prenatal counseling. Uh, you would think in the US everyone would know their trait status, but about 30% of people who have been tested do not know their status. Maybe they never got back to the original pediatrician, message was lost, parents didn't communicate it to the child as they became an adult. So certainly that's, that's something to keep in mind. And one of, the, one of my areas of research is developing with a company a non-invasive prenatal test, looking at the ratio of the hemoglobin S allele in cell-free DNA. There's about 10% fetal cell-free DNA circulating in the maternal blood. And this would uh, allow you to diagnose sickle cell disease or trait in the fetus um, without performing CBS or, or amnio. And we actually just uh, got a, an SBIR from NIH to support that work. Of course, newborn screening is essential and unfortunately is not done in routinely in countries where sickle cell is most common. And it's essential to perform newborn screening so you can start that penicillin at two months of age. And again, that's been the biggest improvement in uh, life expectancy in our sickle cell patients. If you can just start that penicillin between two months of age to five years, life expectancy uh, comes 95% to age 18. And there are other things we can do. Um, watch for microalbuminuria, do the, those ophthalmology exams to look for proliferative retinopathy. Blindness is definitely a preventable thing um, with laser photocoagulation if you detect sickle cell retinopathy. And for further details about uh, preventive care and kind of the things we agree on doing for our patients as a group, there are some excellent NHLBI guidelines that were put together in 2014. Although often when I go to them, I'm a little disappointed because so little of it is evidence-based, so much of it is expert opinion. So we do have a lot of work to do, both on the basic science standpoint and the clinical standpoint. The only curative therapy is stem cell transplant. Uh, overall survival is excellent, event-free survival also excellent if you have a matched sibling donor, but you can imagine how rare that is. I like to tell families it's like you know, your, your chances of having a matched sibling donor are like flipping a coin eight times and getting heads every time. And that seems to help um, 
explain because they'll say, well, I have a, I have a brother, <laughs> you know, and it's like, great, let's, <clears throat> excuse me, let's test him, but, you know, be, be um, aware that that's going to be a, a very rare event that they'll, that they'll match. Of course, there are still complications, even with the matched sibling donor of graft versus host, infection, and fertility, but they're so much lower than if you're doing a haploidentical donor. And a lot of work is being done to uh, optimize the, intense, the, uh, the conditioning to reduce intensity regimens to have as little morbidity as possible. But it's certainly not a universally available cure. <clears throat> so transfusion therapy is another mainstay. Uh, it has certain indications and it is sometimes overused. Uh, I think um, some people think, well, this is always going to help. You know, let's give them normal blood. That'll help them. It is essential for primary and secondary stroke prevention, although primary stroke prevention um, may be accomplished by hydroxyurea. It should be used if they're in an aplastic crisis. You know, look at their retics, they're not making any, their hemoglobin's five, totally appropriate to transfuse. But um, it's always upsetting to see someone transfused when they're in acute pain crisis. That's likely to make it worse, not better. Um, and there's a low level of evidence for using chronic transfusion to prevent recurrent pain events, but we do do it on occasion um, and there was just recently published a paper in uh, Pediatric Blood and Cancer showing some benefit to doing a year's worth of, of chronic transfusion therapy to kind of cool the patient down, would, would be how someone might say it colloquially. So um, it is often used in pregnancy uh, prior to general anesthesia if it's expected to be a fairly long procedure, especially abdominal procedure, not necessary for minor ones. And again, the um, the TRAP study showed that just topping off patients with hemoglobin of 10 is as effective as an exchange transfusion. And many of our patients who are on hydroxyurea, very well managed, very high fetal hemoglobin response, are already at 10. And so then the question is, well, what do we do? Do we still transfuse, try to transfuse this patient? Do we give them 30 mLs? You know? So in general, if, um, in, in our practice, if we see a patient with a high hemoglobin, excellent fetal hemoglobin levels, we'll, we'll have them go to surgery with just prehydration. So you have to kind of tailor it to the patient. So I've been mentioning fetal hemoglobin. Of course, it's, um, it's composed of two alpha chains and two uh, gamma chains. The gamma gene does not carry the sickle mutation. And so if we can get our patients to make more of it or if they naturally make a lot of it, they have a milder disease course. This is on the epidemiology level. Individual patients may vary. So we've all had some patients with very high fetal hemoglobins that still have clinical complications. How can this be? How can you have a pain crisis? Your fetal hemoglobin is 25%. Well, they can and they do at times. And again, that leads to the question of what are these underlying uh, variations that, that uh, drive disease severity of particular complications in sickle cell. But if we can get enough fetal hemoglobin in the cell when that polymer is being made, a fetal hemoglobin will be added and that chain cannot be continued. And so that can definitely reduce sickling. And again, if it has enough fetal hemoglobin, it's called an F cell. And this is something you can look at in the lab. You can do intracellular staining and flow cytometry and separate your F cells from your non-F cells. And it's, it gives you a little different information than what the total hemoglobin is, total fetal hemoglobin is, and can prevent all those complications that I just talked about to some degree. Reduces your risk of stroke, reduces your risk of acute chest, pain, leg ulcers, nephropathy, but doesn't prevent it. So there are many parts to sickle cell disease. It's not just this polymer causing a rigid red cell. Um, Hebbels in, in Minnesota did some excellent work in the 90s showing how important adhesion to the endothelium is 
to the pathophysiology of sickle cell disease and adhesion between the red cell and the white cell, and that all of these different cell types collect together and make this log jam in the vasculature. There's chronic inflammation from all the hemolysis, from this adhesion, from things we don't fully understand. It's a very uh, pro-inflammatory state. There are higher levels of inflammatory cytokines in our sickle cell patients. They are hypercoagulable. Um, and then, of course, there is the sickling, which uh, this particular figure called hemoglobin escalation, which sounds a little awkward to me, but you know, I, I otherwise liked the figure, so I used it, um, leading to red blood cell sickling and this chronic hemolysis. So where can we intervene? Well, we can induce fetal hemoglobin. That's been the biggest um, strategy for the last 25 years in sickle cell disease, using hydroxyurea. And it does increase fetal hemoglobin production, but sadly not to the same degree in all patients. Some patients make trivial amounts of fetal hemoglobin despite being pushed to the maximum tolerated dose, defined as an ANC between 2,000 and 4,000, uh, absolute neutrophil count. And so our thought is that they have less protection then because their fetal hemoglobin isn't that high. But that may not be completely true because hydroxyurea also decreases endothelial adhesion of the red cells and the white cells. It decreases the white count. We're, we're doing it on purpose. We dose to a, to a mild myelosuppression. And that also is just fewer inflamed cells to be sticking to the endothelium and making that log jam. So it certainly shouldn't be, oh, you're only making 12% fetal hemoglobin on hydroxyurea. It's not worth it. It's not helping you. That would not be the, the message uh, we should give to our patients or that you're not taking it because you're only making 12%. That's not something that's under their control. It's something, again, that some underlying genetic variation seems to control. So that was a research question that I looked at um, relatively early in my independent research career of um, why is this hemoglobin F response so variable between patients. And at that stage, I was doing whole exome sequencing, which is just you know the nucleotides and the protein coding regions of the exome and found that variants in a protein called SAL2 were associated with higher fetal hemoglobin response. Uh, and then I started looking more at endogenous or baseline fetal hemoglobin, got into whole genome sequencing, which I'll talk more about. And so I haven't gone back to this yet to do the necessary functional studies to fully understand the role of SAL2 in hydroxyurea response. And another question that it seems amazing we're still asking is how does hydroxyurea work? Uh, we still don't know. Is it all a maturation arrest? Is it more targeted? Um, and that's something I'm working on right now. I've collected RNA samples from our patients before starting hydroxyurea and on hydroxyurea and have um, performed the RNA-seq on these 30 paired samples of 60 total. And we're doing that analysis now and hope to identify pathways that are altered by hydroxyurea that are especially um, correlating with fetal hemoglobin response. So the clinical benefits of hydroxyurea have been well described. There was a trial, the MESH trial in adults, which showed a 50% reduction in pain crises, acute chest, hospitalizations, transfusions. Seems to be a mortality benefit. Um, and it's now being used uh, for primary stroke prevention from uh, the TWITCH trial. It's really not known whether it can prevent your second stroke because uh, an earlier attempt to look at that SWITCH trial was closed early. Um, and its effect on pulmonary hypertension and nephropathy are not known. <coughs> but you can definitely see evidence of hydroxyurea working. So this is a peripheral blood smear, and it's easy to see the sickle forms uh, before starting hydroxyurea, and then watch them disappear as the dose is um, titrated up. 
And sometimes it's nice to show your patients their peripheral blood smears as a, as a motivator so they can actually see it working. That was something we did at St. Jude pretty routinely. And so there are other uh, fetal hemoglobin-inducing agents, none of which have become widely used like hydroxyurea for different reasons. Uh, butyrates were looked at for, for quite a few years and finally went to a phase two trial. And while it showed modest fetal hemoglobin induction, pain events increased for unknown reasons. I personally have a trial of metformin uh, in a pilot study form at my institution and uh, a neighboring one in Houston underway. And I'll explain why. I think that's a fetal hemoglobin inducer uh, nearer to the end. Some cytosine analogs have long been known to induce fetal hemoglobin. Azacitidine was actually looked at before hydroxyurea, but again, quite, quite toxic by comparison. Decitabine um, also has the disadvantage of increasing platelet count to over a million, and that's not a good thing in an already hypercoagulable patient. So I, I doubt that either of these will become mainstays of sickle cell care. And some immunomodulary agents like varinostat, pavinostat are being looked at. Pomalidomide uh, went to a phase one. Um, interestingly, pomalidomide was not additive with hydroxyurea, as I found metformin to be. They actually seem to antagonize each other. And again, a much more toxic agent. Um, another approach, rather than inducing fetal hemoglobin, is to keep hemoglobin S in its oxygenated state, where it's much less likely to sickle. And there's a new agent um, that's completed um, phase two clinical trials. The phase three is actually on hold because they were so excited about their good results that they want to talk directly to the FDA and, and uh, get a IND, an investigational new drug designation for it. So uh, formerly GBT440, they named it Voxelator. I think it sounds like a robot, but, <laughs> uh, but what it does do is uh, bind hemoglobin, keep it in the R state, um, increasing oxygen affinity, which reduces sickling. Less sickling means less hemolysis, and the overall hemoglobin does rise. Um, there's been some discussion in the literature about some possible safety issues with this. Um, American Journal of Hematology had a nice uh, commentary from Hebbels um, about what effect having this increased oxygen affinity might have on offloading of oxygen, on CNS complications. Um, and there was a, a response to that as well from uh, Jeremy Estep at St. Jude. So that's um, not you know, available outside of a clinical trial and is kind of on hold right now as they look to see if they can get FDA approval. Um, but just to kind of intersperse a little of the research I'm doing, there's a erythroid cell line called HUDEP cells uh, that a colleague of mine did for Cas9 gene editing to make a sickle cell line. He just did it for fun and told me I have the cell line, you know, are you interested? And so yeah, I said, yeah. Um, and I thought, well, let's see if we can use it to screen anti-sickling compounds. And just as proof of principle, we treated these cells with um, GPT-440 or Buxellator. And um, at the concentrations, that would be comparable to serum levels in our patients. And we did see a significant reduction in sickling. So this could potentially be a tool for screening further anti-sickling compounds. It's always nice to have collaborators and get some interesting tools from them. And you as the physician can think about that tool in a different way than the bioengineer who made them did. So another approach is an antioxidant approach. Um, and that leads us to our other FDA-approved drug for sickle cell disease, which I don't believe is being widely used anywhere yet uh, for a few reasons. 
It's L-glutamine. It is just the amino acid. Um, its trade name is Indari, and it was FDA approved in the spring, and everybody was shocked because it wasn't on anybody's radar. There, it had been presented at ASH in 2014. I think it, I don't know if it was a talk or a poster because I didn't, I was at that meeting and I don't remember it. <laughs> and um, it was uh, a small phase three trial. Nothing happened for two years or more. And then they approached the FDA and I guess because it was an amino acid and it seemed safe, it was FDA approved. It showed some modest benefit. Uh, this is a powder you have to take. It's, I tell patients it's about the size of a Miralax packet twice a day. Unfortunately, unlike Miralax, it doesn't dissolve all the way. It leaves a gritty residue, so it's sort of like drinking a slightly sandy drink. And it is $40,000 a year for our patients. Why for an amino acid? I sometimes tell them you can also get it at GNC, <laughs> which you can. Uh, I don't know how much purer the Andari is than the nutritional supplement, but for patients without excellent insurance or on Medicaid, Medicaid does cover it, um, often insurance companies want you to contribute a few hundred a month for this drug. So why was it priced that way? Um, I imagine based on what they thought they could save the insurance companies for hospitalizations. Because to kind of skip ahead a bit, um, in this clinical trial they showed that there were fewer hospital visits for sickle cell crises from four a year to three a year. So not a home run, not a, this will change your life forever and who knows what the change will be in actual real life use, not a clinical trial. But I think they estimated about what that hospitalization would cost and priced the drug accordingly. And that really saddens me. It also uh, reduced the hospital stay, so I'm sure that factored into the pricing. And there were fewer cases of acute chest syndrome. It did, however, have some adverse effects of constipation, nausea, headache, abdominal pain, some cough, some generalized body pain. And um, I have prescribed it for my patients. I tell them about it. Um, I was having to talk about it once all the news came out about it being FDA approved, even though it wasn't yet available, because this is a very small company making it and they couldn't scale up. I guess they weren't expecting such rapid approval. Um, and so I was telling them, go to GNC if you really want to try it. Uh, but I haven't had enough experience to see whether any of my patients benefit. And I'm curious to also look at what effects it has on their blood. One of the things my lab can do is measure the viscosity of the blood, the deformability of the red cell with an ectocytometer. I even have one in beta testing that subjects it to different levels of hypoxia. So it challenges the red cell. So I want to see if I can detect any kind of tangible benefit from this drug in my, my patients that are taking it. There's also arginine, which is again kind of related to L-glutamine. Um, uh, Claudia Morris is um, instituting a phase two trial of it, and we've um, expressed interest in being a site. It would be given IV during hospitalization, so different from L-glutamine, not a preventative daily, but a, while you're in the hospital. We participated in, a Scott, in the Scott trial, which looked at omega-3 fatty acids. Again, something you can buy over the counter, and you may have to because apparently the company's gone bankrupt. <laughs> and, and acetylcysteine is also uh, uh, completed a randomized controlled trial, uh, but the results haven't been uh, made available. So another strategy is to block inflammation. And uh, a multi-center trial of regadenosin, which was supposed to reduce INK T cells in our patients, uh, completed and showed no benefit. So you can cross that one off your list. Um, simvastatin, 
is, uh, has been looked at in a very small study of 19 patients, shows some promise with reduction in diary pain reports. I prefer more concrete endpoints. I'd like to see a laboratory change, something I can see and measure. But if it is randomized, um, that could, could have some possible benefit, but I'm concerned about a non-randomized study when the endpoint is a subjective one of pain diary reports. IVIG is being looked at in a randomized controlled trial. It would be given once, 24 hours into a pain crisis. Uh, Singular or Montan class is also being looked at with no results yet. So now let's think about adhesive interactions. So um, the red cell adheres to the endothelium um, either directly or indirectly uh, through these P-selectin and E-selectin molecules on the surface of the endothelium. And so blocking them could prevent that attachment. Once the red cell attaches and becomes deoxygenated and sickles, the cascade of, of um, leading, leading to vaso-occlusion begins, is, is, the, is the theory. So there are two drugs um, targeting that pathway. One is SEG-101, which Novartis makes, um, also known as Crisanlizumab, which was published in the New England Journal in December of last year, a nice trial multi-center randomized, showing pain crisis prevention. So this would be an IV drug given once monthly to prevent pain crises. Another in phase three trials now is Rivipanzil, which blocks E-selectin, and it, similar to IVIG, would be given within 24 hours of initiation of a vaso-occlusive crisis in the emergency department. So, uh, Rivapanzil would need to be given within 24 hours of your first IV dose. It's uh, being tested in about 70 centers throughout the U.S. and Canada, and my site is one of them. So gene therapy. Um, this would be our best hope for a universal cure, since you could be your own donor. Take your bone marrow, edit it, give it back to you. And this has been done in a 13-year-old patient in France uh, with a lentiviral vector. It was published in the New England Journal as well. And this patient um, was described 15 months out from his, his um, autologous transplant, having uh, no complications. He had had numerous pain crises uh, prior and was pain-free. Unfortunately, 18 months after his transplant, he did have a pain crisis, was hospitalized for it. It was a significant event. And I heard about it from the, the people involved in his care at a meeting in France, but I had not heard about it more universally, so I don't know how publicized that was. But uh, even though he was producing um, 60, uh, excuse me, 50% of the um, Bluebird Bio's hemoglobin and only 50% hemoglobin S, he still suffered a pain event. But certainly much reduced from his prior clinical course. So, oops, another. Uh, approach, not lentivirus, because there is some concerns about um, insertion of the lentiviral vector um, in various parts of the genome would be CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing, which is more targeted. Now, um, a clinical trial of CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing in sickle cell disease is moving forward in Europe, but the FDA has requested more safety data before granting an IND here. Uh, CRISPR Therapeutics was sure they were going to start a clinical trial in the U.S. early this year. But then there was a report showing that edited cells uh, were more likely to have T53 mutations. Now this was in a cell line and this needs to be further looked at, but I do think this is why the FDA wanted further safety uh, investigations before approving CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing. 